0: If you would take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Jonah, continuing with our series in the book of Jonah today, and just want to pause just for a moment before we get into the text and say thank you to all of you who have put so much time and effort um, not only giving toward this renovation project over at the houses, but but those of you who've who've set aside time to come and help us, I really appreciate it. Uh, It has been uh, very, very helpful, and I know I speak for both my family and for uh, Cameron and Ashley, so thank you guys very much for for assisting us. It means a lot. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, and we're going to take a huge amount of text again today and go to verse 6, all right. If you would stand when you find that, let's read from God's Word together. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a a thought to us that we may not perish. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today reminded of who you are through the songs that we have sung through the scripture that we have read, reminded of your goodness and your loving kindness. And we pray, Father, that through this text this morning, we would not only be reminded of how great and awesome and powerful you are, but that we would be reminded of your love, your affection for us, for your people, for your creation. And that we would respond in faith, desiring to honor you with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we began our discussion of the book of Jonah. And here this morning, we we jump right back into the text in the middle of the story. And um, as we come to this portion of the text, if we remember back from what we looked at last week, we saw that God came to Jonah And he spoke to Jonah, and he gave Jonah a specific mission that he was to accomplish. He was to take a word from God, and he was to go to the city of Nineveh. It says even that great city in Nineveh, being the capital of the Assyrian Empire, uh, the, the enemies, the enemies of the people of Israel. He was to go to them, giving them a word from the Lord. And so what we see happen with Jonah is he receives that calling from God, And then what other prophets would do, or what we've seen other prophets do, is they take that call and then they go and do what it is that God has told them to go and do. But Jonah does the exact opposite of what God tells him to do. In fact, he goes the exact opposite direction. So not only does he just stay where he's at and just sit there. No, he goes and he goes down to Joppa. He gets on a ship and he heads toward Tarshish, which is over by Spain. And if you know anything about Middle Eastern geography, that's the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. Nineveh is in the heart of Iraq, modern-day Iraq. And so Jonah receives a call from the Lord. He goes the exact opposite direction that God has called him to go. And so we find him here in this part of the story, disobedient towards God. And now here he's on the ship out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and God comes once again to him. So in this first section, this is first verse, verse 4, I want you to notice the greatness of God's mercy. The greatness of God's mercy. You're probably sitting there thinking, well, if I remember back to verse 4, it didn't seem very merciful what God was doing. So let's go back to verse 4 and look at it together. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So here we find God, the one who in verse 1 speaks. Remember? God is the one who is speaking to him, a command to perform. And now we see that same God now acting. Now, it's probably the most active intervention that you could possibly imagine. God doesn't just simply come to Jonah again once he's in the bottom of the ship and say, "Hey, hey, Jonah, Jonah, do you remember I was talking to you? And uh, you know, I, I really wanted you to go and do the thing that I actually told you to do." No, He doesn't do that at all. This is a, a, an extreme measures. God goes and He hurls uh, the, the winds and the storm upon them. It's a it's a reminder to us of the flood that we find in the book of Genesis. In Noah's time, God comes and he destroys the entire world with a flood because of humanity's evil. But here in this text, even the language is even more violent than we find in the book of Genesis in regards to the entire worldwide flood. In the story of Noah, it simply says that the flood waters came upon the earth. It's almost as if God is sitting back and he's he's watching as these things take place. Nothing is out of his hands, but it's not as as actively involved here. And here in this text, it says that that the the water, the storm, is hurled by God. God God is taking this storm as though it were a spear, as though it was a rock, and he's chucking it at this small little bitty boat in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It's an active intervention from God. Now, When we look at this, this book, especially this text here, there's something really important we have to note. Throughout the book, the author uses the term great. I don't know if you notice this or not. He uses it over and over and over again. He calls in in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4, he calls that city of Nineveh, he calls it a great city. It's a large city. It's a huge city. It takes days to walk from one end to the other end. He says that both the wind and the storm are great. It's the same word there. In the English translation, they kind of make it a little more colorful by using a different adjective. But the word is great. Also, the, the fear that the sailors experience, it's a great fear as we see later on. The fish that comes to Jonah and swallows Jonah up says it's a great fish. The aristocracy of Nineveh, chapter 3, it's a great fish aristocracy. The evil that Jonah finds in the city of Nineveh is great. And even the, the delight, strangely enough, that, that Jonah feels toward his gourd, not his head, but the gourd that grows up and allows some shade for him. He says that it's great. So it remind us, this story is about really, it's about great things, isn't it? It's about great things. It's not simply about the greatest human creations, whether it's a a massive city or or, or a large plant. It's a story about a great God. That's what the story is about. The Scripture reminds us. It says, great is the Lord. Great is Yahweh, and abundantly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. How unsearchable is God's greatness? It's unsearchable. You can't plumb its depths. You can't find the, the end of God's greatness. It's as almost as if God's greatness was an ocean that literally had no bottom. There is depth to it. You cannot mine it out. You cannot find the, the bottom of it. It is unsearchable. It is unfathomable, this greatness of God. It's a greatness like unlike that of the greatness of a city. Or the extent of the sea, it is a greatness that literally cannot be measured. This is how great our God is. And so behind this great wind on the sea, this great storm, is someone who is great beyond all measures. But what we must see as we look at this book is that the greatness of God's unfathomable loving kindness is exactly what it is that makes him great. In fact, we see in Psalm 145, it says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all that he has made. Jonah, as we saw in chapter 4 from last week, Jonah is actually angry with God because God is slow to anger. Jonah is frustrated with God. Jonah attempts to do what he wants to do with his life instead of obeying God's call because of God's greatness in mercy and loving kindness. This is the reason that he refused to obey God in chapter 1. So it is the greatness of God's mercy and loving kindness that we find now that pursues Jonah out into the high seas it is this loving kindness of God that pursues him and will not let him escape God is pursuing Jonah because he loves Jonah because he has called Jonah he he loves Jonah like he loves Israel Israel was was the, the apple of God's eye he loved her covenantally loved her, and in the same way he loves Jonah. He is the one that is is lifted up as the, the Israelite, that is the only really Israelite in the story, and he's beloved by God, and God will not let him flee out into disobedience. And so God pursues him. But also notice that it's out of God's loving kindness that he demonstrates His power in front of those lost sailors. The sailors, they don't know that the storm is a result of God's incredible love for human beings. They don't know that their lives, it seems, are in jeopardy because God loves people and wants people to be reconciled to himself. And so as a result, they fight against the storm. They do what they can to, to save themselves. And, and they don't have this understanding of the unfathomable mercy of God that is now hurling a storm at them to show them who he is. To them, the great mercy of the Lord looks like a deadly, horrific storm that will probably end their lives. Now, not this true for us as well? I mean, you think about it. How many times... Are we pursuing our own plans only to be interrupted by a storm in the life? We're chasing after our own dreams, or, or maybe we're just living out our lives in the, in the best way, the way that seems right to us, the way that makes sense to us, and we're focusing our attention on Tarshish. We're looking for that that city that we want to go to. We're we're looking for that end goal of the thing that we want to have in our life. We're, We're attempting to build our own kingdom right here. And then God interrupts the plan. Sometimes it comes with the loss of a job. The job that you love. The job that you have had for 25 years and now you're being laid off or you're being let go or or, or sometimes it comes with the, the ending of a friendship or financial strain or, or a terminal illness But but God does not allow these storms in our lives because he wants us to suffer because he hates us because he doesn't like us he doesn't allow the storms in our life for that reason no it's out of his great love that he Redirects us. He calls us back to that original purpose in our life. He does that through the storms, oftentimes, friends. Maybe you're here this morning. You've never, you've never known God through relationship with Jesus Christ. You you suffer and you go through difficulty, and life doesn't make any sense, my friends. God is using everything in your life to redirect you, just like the sailors redirect you to a point where you might know God, where you might see more clearly how it is that God has brought you now into a place where you might be reconciled to him. God arrests our lives so that we can see more clearly who it is that we owe everything to. Last week, we saw how easy it is for us to walk away from the calling of God. That calling, remember from Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations, whether it's your own children or the children of someone else on the other side of the globe. We're, we're, to, we're to make disciples of our co workers, of our friends, of our neighbors, of our enemies, even. But instead, what do we do? Oftentimes, we pursue our own plans instead of this. So as we look at our lives this morning, we have to ask when you look at your life, you think about the storms, you think about the things that are happening in your life, what is it, maybe, that God is using to get your attention? So let's look at the the response from the sailors, the panic of unbelievers. Look at verse 5. Then the mariners, not the baseball team, the mariners, the sailors, were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And then they began to hurl things. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down. And he was fast asleep. Now, what's really interesting in this scene is that it's not God's prophet. It's not not Jonah that responds to God's action. Do you notice that? not the one who should have been clued in the fact that he serves the one true and living God. It's not Jonah who sees the storm and the sea and the waves and then begins to immediately connect that with, oh, God must not be happy. No, it's the Gentiles. It's the pagans. It's the unbelievers. They, they see the spiritual implications of the storm. Jonah was sent for the good of the Gentiles living there in Nineveh. But what he has attempted to do, he's attempted to thwart God's plan altogether. He doesn't want the word of God to go to Nineveh. And so he does the exact opposite of what God has told him to do. He's attempting to supplant God's will, God's reign on the earth. But the psalmist reminds us that this is impossible. Psalm 33.10, it says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. So nations, nations... With armies of thousands and ten thousands, whether it's tanks or chariots, they cannot thwart the plan of God. So certainly, this one insignificant little prophet, one little man cannot thwart the will of God. So Jonah is trying to outrun God's plan to extend mercy to unbelievers, and he unintentionally leads these unsuspecting sailors right to God's path. Doesn't he? At the end of the book, this is precisely the message that the Lord gives to this Jonah. Should not the Lord have compassion on all of these ignorant, poor Gentiles? It's almost as if Jonah, God is asking Jonah, What do you think you are for, Jonah? What do you think your reason for existing is? Your prophet. You're God's chosen one. I chose you. You're the dove of truth. All of the troubles that you've had in your life up until this point, they have been for the blessing of the nations. And Jonah, he just can't get away from the mission, can he? Despite the the initial appearance of what God has told him to do, to go and proclaim a message that sounded very much like destruction to the people living in Nineveh, the Lord has sent him out For the good of the Gentiles and for the good of the Gentiles, that's why he goes. And so even when he's disobeying God, he's still working for God, whether he knows it or not. And as these sailors who are unbelieving come into contact with this one true and living God, their lives are completely altered and changed. Now notice the fear of the sailors. You look at the sailors. I don't know if you've ever been out on a boat like this. I don't know that I have. But I can imagine it being terrifying. I mean, I've seen the movie The Perfect Storm. And uh, I can't imagine being in a boat that was made of wood in a situation like that. But I mean, it, it could remind us to think of maybe Psalm 107. In this psalm, it talks about sailors. It says, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea, and they mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and they staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. These sailors here in this story are at their wit's end. They've come to the limit of all that they have, all of their expertise, all of their knowledge about what they should do in a storm like this, in these kinds of times, everything that they've planned to do, all of the measures that they have, it's all for nothing. And so they've come to the point where now they're reeling about on the deck of this boat like drunkards, incapable of doing anything to save their own lives, bewildered, as they're being slapped about by the force of the waves. And this same force, it overwhelms them, not just outwardly, but inwardly, as they begin to call out to their gods. Notice what they do. They begin to cry out to their gods. Now, there are some who say that that all religions are equal, and that, in fact, every religious expression of a god is really the same. It points to the same maybe divine idea or concept or even deity, that all roads lead to the same end path. But the reality is here for these people, that is not true at all, is it? Here they're, they're probably Canaanites. And so maybe they're, they're calling out to Yom, who's the, the god of the oceans or the seas, the Canaanite god for the oceans or the seas. Or maybe they're crying out to Baal who is the god of storms and rain. And they're calling out to these gods, and maybe there are other gods, but even in Canaanite culture, they knew that their gods were geographically located, which means to say they would go to specific places in Canaan and worship their god because their god only had authority and power in certain places, and that's what they believed. So they would have to go to this location to worship this god. Or they would have to go to this location to worship this god. And so as they're gathered here together, they're beginning to cry out to all of the gods. They don't know who is upset. They don't know what is happening. But they're hoping that one of their gods will listen. One of their gods will do something. But no matter how much they cry out to their pagan gods, no matter how sincere they are in their belief, all of their pleas for help fall upon, literally fall upon deaf ears. Isaiah 44, God speaks about the futility of idolatry. He tells this story even of of a woodworker. And this woodworker takes a a piece of wood and he takes and chops it into different portions. And he takes some of the wood and and he puts it into the fire and he begins to... Uh, heat himself by the warmth of the wood and the fire and then he begins to roast his meal over the fire and so the wood is helping him to accomplish those meaningless things and now he takes that third portion of the wood and he begins to carve it and he, he makes this beautiful idol and then he, he takes and puts the idol down and then he falls down and worships the wooden idol and how silly and stupid that really is this same block of wood He burnt so that he could roast his meal. And it's the same block of wood that he's bowing down to and worshiping. And Yahweh says, this idol cannot hear you. This idol cannot do anything for you. It is just a block of wood. Only God, only the Lord is the one who hears. And it's only the Lord, he is the only one that really speaks. So we find that to be true here for them as well. There is only one God who made all of the seas and all of the land. There is only one God who made heaven and earth. There is only one God who judges the living and the dead. And there is only one God who can pardon and forgive sins. And it's the God of Jonah. It's the triune God, the one true and living God. It is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so after they've cried out to their gods, with no effect, they begin to try and save themselves. They forsake. The entire purpose of their journey was trade. So they're, they're going all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. The reason for it is to buy and sell, to take goods to one place to another. And now there's no purpose in, in doing any of that if you're not alive. You can't do The trade, you can't make money, you can't save up money, you can't earn for yourself anything if you're dead. And so they begin to throw all of these things out into the ocean to try and lighten the ship. Friends, these are the actions of those who are attempting to save themselves. And they're unaware of the only God who can actually save them. To be truthful, we've all tried to do this, haven't we? We've all, without Christ, we've all attempted to save ourselves. We call out to what we call a God. The God who does what we want Him to do when we want Him to do it. The God that we want in the emergency, but the God that we don't want in regular life. The God that we've fabricated in our own minds. People do this all the time when they're scared. You notice this? You've heard people say things like, well, there was this point in my life and it was just so crazy and and I was in the hospital and, and I just cried out to God. and They cried out to God not in the context of a relationship with Jesus Christ or a knowledge of who God has revealed Himself to be in this Word, but they call out to the God, the only God that they know, and that's the God that they've fabricated in their own minds. Praying earnestly to a false understanding of God is not praying to the God that can save. And so now we see the scene, it shifts back to Jonah, the different place from the sailors who are on the top of the ship laboring to try and salvage the ship. And somehow, it's still a little strange when you read the text, somehow Jonah has descended now into the bowels of the ship and he's fallen asleep in the midst of this storm. There at the bottom of the boat, he becomes, whether anyone knows it or not, the hidden meaning behind this disaster. Like Israel among the nations, the chosen one who gives meaning to the rest of the world and gives context for the Lord Jesus Christ to come in history. And unknown to those sailors who are terrified on the deck, this unconscious Israelite in the inner part of the ship is the clue to the story. He's the clue to their salvation. Now, even though it doesn't look like it from the sailor's perspective, as long as Jonah is on the ship, the ship ain't going down. Why? Because he's God's beloved. Because he's God's man to go to Nineveh. He's God's man to go to the Gentiles. We look at this story, it should remind us, as Cameron has helped us to be mindful of in the service. It should remind us of another vessel that nearly went down, a fishing vessel, actually, on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was out in the boat with his disciples, and he falls asleep. And a storm comes up, and then Jesus does a remarkable thing. And here, Jesus, and that story, he is the, the obedient prophet, isn't he? doing exactly what it is that God told him to do he's the obedient prophet identifying with the disobedient now of course when we look at Jonah Jonah is unlike Jesus in many different ways just like we are he in and of himself he has no power over the waves does he it's not as though he could stand up on the deck and say peace be still no we don't see Jonah doing that yet when push comes to shove what does Jonah do Well, he did something very similar to what Jesus did. He accomplishes the salvation of the sailors by giving himself up to death. See, I don't think Jonah had any idea there was going to be a great fish to swallow him. He said, throw me overboard and you will be saved. He he gives himself up for the salvation of these sailors, satisfying the wrath of God and freeing everybody from the storm. This is what Jesus has done for us on the cross, isn't it? But unlike Jonah, Jesus was innocent. Jonah was disobedient. He was not innocent. But Jesus was innocent, and he allowed himself to be thrown over the side of the boat, thrown into the deep waters of death so that you and I could be reconciled with God. Jesus stills the waves of God's wrath for us at the cross. But how often are we more like Jonah? Aren't we? One commentator put it this way. I just want to read this to you. He says, The church should consider identifying with Jonah, but with less innocent confidence than our Lord Jesus Christ. The number of ways we have run away from the word of our Lord, descending or descended among the nations, and fallen asleep, among the disasters for which we are responsible are no doubt beyond counting. Perhaps we could consider, first of all, the great disaster of the dissolution of Christendom, which leaves the West full of wealth and contrivance, commerce and technology, pleasures of all sorts to be bought and consumed, but no meaning of life worth living. It would be worth hurling it all overboard if we could find who slumbers at the bottom of it all? Are we guilty of sleeping at the bottom of the boat while the world around us is going to hell? We're called to preach, we're called to speak to the nations, and to bring them out of disaster by offering to them the most precious of cargo. That is the gospel that spells out how they can be reconciled to the one who created them. That is our job. Now notice the call to action in the text. Verse 6, the call for believers to act. Verse 6 so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean? You sleeper? Arise. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So the captain comes to Jonah and, and he shakes him awake and he says, Hey, what are you doing? We're all on top of the boat. We're about to die. What are you doing sleeping? Wake up, he says. Jonah is attempting to escape God's call, but he's fallen asleep. Some of us will try to escape God's call in our lives in a variety of different ways. This has been true of me before, I'm sure. If we're honest, it's been true of all of us before. I know that it's true of many Christians. We become so overwhelmed by what God has actually told us to do to be faithful, to make disciples, to do the things that He's instructed us to do in the Scriptures that we begin to hide then from what is most important. And we put up a facade of things that we are about, things that we are doing, but they're really not penetrating to the depth of the purposes for which God has called us out of death and into life. And we fill our lives with things that are ungodly, things that are not essential. We fill our schedules with work. We fill our schedules with play. We spend hours surfing the net or, or messaging on Facebook. We watch movies. We read books. We play sports. And, and friends, these things are not necessarily evil, are they? Well, neither is sleeping. It's just, when are you doing it? The problem is that often we're sleeping when we should be praying. We're sometimes watching movies when we should be studying the Word of God. We're, we're sometimes going on vacation when we should be going on mission. We're, we're fostering insignificant connections on Facebook when we should be discipling our coworker in the ways of Christ. Notice what the captain says to Jonah. He calls him back to the Lord's first word, doesn't he? He's calling him back to his responsibility, to his duty. To that initial word, he says, arise. Arise. That's what God said at the very beginning to Jonah. Arise. Now, of course, here it means sleeper. Wake up. Get up. But it ought to be a reminder for us to wake up as well. Jonah's captain, it's as if he was telling us as well, wake up, people. Wake up. Stop playing dead. Get up. Pray, get about the business of what God has called you to do. Friends, there are people all around us who are living under the stormy judgment of God and they need light. They need the gospel that you have tucked away in your own heart. So how long will you sleep? The Apostle Paul, quoting from the prophet, says, Awake. O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. He goes on and he says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So friends, may we be people who respond in faith. And we do so by obeying the Lord and doing the things that he's called us to do, which is to make disciples of all nations. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to learn from the story of Jonah, that we would see how you are great and awesome, that you are indeed merciful, and that your loving kindness endures forever. But the Lord, we would see those things that are true about you, and we would respond in faith, believing, and living the belief about what you have called us to do in your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name.